So we are in James chapter 1, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses as we begin this afternoon, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Father, would you please come and speak to us now through your word, speak to our hearts, uh, speak to the deep places of our hearts so that we can learn your will and then give us grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I was, I was, I was thinking as we were singing and observing communion of how grateful I was for the focus of the songs and of communion. Uh, and the reason for that, I'm grateful every time, uh, but the reason I was particularly grateful for it this afternoon is because this series of messages on communication is one in which uh, we are presenting many principles and commandments and moral laws of God that are to apply to our relationships, and we are doing this in a way that's a little bit unusual. Normally in our preaching, there is a measure of theology, there's a measure of preaching specifically and with focus on the cross, on the person of God, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. But James is different than that. James is different than other New Testament books in that there's almost no reference to Christ. Just three or four comments about Christ. And there's no real reference to the cross. And just barely a reference to the resurrection. And so you can read the book of James and come away feeling, wow, this, this book is heavy. And in fact, it is. There are some 40 to 50 imperatives in the five chapters of this book. And it comes off as one commandment after another. And, and it might actually tempt you to think that this is some kind of moralistic, uh, legalistic list of do's and don'ts. But we need to understand that behind this and beneath this and surrounding this and supporting this is the reality of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for us. So that even as we preach here in James today, I am grateful for what we've already experienced. We have focused on the person and work of Christ. We have focused on the fatherhood of God. We have focused on the love of God. And it's on that foundation of God in His love in Christ for us, that we can look at these principles. We can look at these commands. And we don't have to be condemned by them. We don't have to, to, to carry them in a way that is, uh, that is heavy. We don't have to carry them in a way that is guilt-stricken. We can carry them. Jesus says, my burden is light. And the burden is light because our sins are forgiven. The burden is light because His grace is enough to help us as we work through this. So, 
Let the gospel that we have sung about, let the gospel that we have remembered in communion be the context in which you hear this ongoing series on communication. Now we are in a series, this is our third of what is going to be either four or five. Uh, We may extend it to a fifth uh, message, a series on communication principles and laws of God as they connect to our relationships and how we communicate with each other. Believe it or not, I need to turn this fan down. Because it's blowing my notes all over the place and I can't see them. Where we've been so far in this series is this. We have given you four principles to date along with some exquisitely beautiful poetry uh, that I'm sure has impressed you but is intended to help just a little further in, in pressing these points home to our heart. So here's, here's the review. Our first principle, we're using the word communicate as an acrostic and a guide for this series. The first principle, the letter C is chill in the poetry. To keep from war in little spat, turn down the anger thermostat. And then there was O, open up. To hide the heart and spirit close does far more harm than we suppose. And then the first M, Make time. Talk takes time. So choose to plan how much and when as best you can. And then the first or the second M, mean what you say. Being heard depends on you. Make all your words both straight and true. We will continue now this morning and in the next Sunday or two. So if you're following along in your notes, which I hope you got as you uh, entered today, anybody that did not get notes, if you didn't, raise your hand and the ushers will make sure you get a copy. Looks like everyone had them. And if you haven't been here in previous weeks, there's a folder. Uh, in, there are folders, some extra folders in the uh, lobby that you can pick up and uh, collect all these notes in. First for today, we come to the letter U. I'm guessing some of you could guess what this is, but let's go with it. U is understand what you hear. If the previous point was mean what you say, this point is understand what you hear. Understand what you hear. In James chapter 1 and verse 19, we, we read these words, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear. This is the hearing. This, there, there, there is hearing, and then there is hearing. You understand what I mean? There, James is commanding us here to exercise the second kind of hearing, a hearing of understanding, a hearing that perceives, that takes it in. Jesus once talked about people who hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. Hearing, they hear not, neither do they 
understand. This is a problem that goes on in our relationship with God, and it's a problem that goes on in our relationships with each other. We do not hear with the hearing of understanding. A couple of, I spent some time this week thinking back over the first principle, chill, do not be quick to sinful anger. And I asked myself the question this week, Tim, what is most likely to get you angry sinfully and quickly? As I reflected on it, my answer to the question, what is most likely to get me angry sinfully and quickly is when other people get angry sinfully and quickly. In other words, I can be very impatient with other people's impatience. Or I can be very judgmental with other people's judgmentalism. Anybody relate to that? And as I thought on that, it made me realize that I have to understand before I react, before I respond. Why do some people get angry so quickly? What might be going on in that person's life? What might be going on in that person's experience? Why are they so defensive? Why are they so hostile? Why is there this flare-up? What is going on and why? I need to understand what I hear. Proverbs 18 and verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. If, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only... Okay. Let's try that. I have a habit of forgetting to clean my glasses. And occasionally they can get so dirty that Galene comes from the opposite side of the room to take them off my face and clean them for me. I, I just don't notice. I'm looking through smears and smudges. My vision is distorted and unclear, all the while thinking that I'm seeing clearly. Seems to me like that's a pretty good illustration of how we are in our relationship sometimes. We think we're seeing clearly. We think we are hearing well. We think we understand, but the reality is that our, our glasses are smudged. Our, our ears are full of wax. We, we have to choose to listen. We have to choose to listen, to understand what we hear. In poetic version, this goes like this, to listen, cover mouth with hand, and bend the ear to understand. To listen, cover mouth with hand. Stop talking and bend the ear to understand. Labor to listen. Diligent effort is needed in order to really hear or else miscommunication and misunderstanding 
will happen. Assume nothing. Don't trust your interpretations of what other people say. Seek understanding or you will find trouble. Seek understanding or you're going to find sorrow. Seek understanding or you're going to find division. You might find divorce. You will find every evil thing. Seek understanding. But understand that understanding is hard work. This doesn't come easily. It is a selfless work, a tireless work, a relentless work, sometimes a thankless work. Doesn't happen easily, doesn't happen quickly. But our marriages and our families and our church unity and our peace and our love are all worth it. They're all worth it. And let me add, the more we labor to understand, the more we will be like God. This week, we, Galen and I, spent a couple of days up in Massachusetts uh, serving in a church up there, a little church that's been going through some challenges, and uh, they asked if we could just come up and help them out a little bit, so it was a privilege to do that. I spent a few minutes talking with a man who, two years ago, his teenage son died. Uh, he died collapsing on the church parking lot with other children around in the church, and this man shared with me just the, the intense anger and confusion and doubt and fear and upset that he feels toward God. He told me that just this, a few days ago, he, he was intense in his reaction and grief, his reaction to God. And it, it made me think of the Psalms. And how many times in the Psalms, the psalmist cries out in fear and cries out in doubt and cries out in anger and cries out in confusion and, and says things like, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you being so unfair to me? There's depression. There's unbelief. There's anger. There's hurt. There's all kinds of emotional reaction, and yet there's no rebuke from God. And why? Because God understands what he hears. God gets it. God understands that the, the anger and the emotion and the fear and the confusion and, and the, the reaction is not really down deep hostility toward God. It's the crying of a heart in anguish. And God understands that, and God gets that, and, and God responds accordingly. He doesn't respond in anger. He responds in comfort. Because God understands what he hears. I've often thought about what we read in Luke chapter 1. We have the angel coming to Zechariah, and then we have the angel coming to Mary, the mother of our Lord. And, and if you read the text, it seems as if Zechariah and Mary respond 
in pretty much the same way. And yet God's reaction to Zechariah and Mary are very different. When, when Zechariah hears that he and his, his aged wife are going to have a child, Zechariah responds, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. When Mary, the virgin Mary, hears that she is going to have a child, she responds, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now listen to those responses. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How will this be since I am a virgin? It's hard to tell the difference between those two responses, and yet there's clearly a difference in their hearts, as you can tell by our Lord's response to them. With Zechariah, God disciplined him for his unbelief. With Mary, God, through the angel, pronounced a blessing over her and gave her, if you will, a bit of an angelic hug. And you look at it and say, why the difference? It seems like they're both doubting equally. It seems like they're both in the same place. But God knows the difference. God understands the heart. Zachariah's words were doubting God's ability. Mary's words were simply questioning God's logistics. How are you going to get this done? I don't doubt that you can do it. I just don't know how. God understands the heart. I don't know about you, but I know I, how grateful I am that even in my weakest moments and even in my worst words and even in my most sinful moments, God understands me. So that when we labor to understand what we hear, we are being very much like God. Now, God has an advantage, right? He is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the heart. It just comes to him. He just knows what's in our hearts. We don't have that ability. We have to work at it. We have to find out what's in the heart. We have to pursue it. We have to labor to understand. And if we don't, if we don't, the effects, the effects can be so serious. A couple came to me for counseling decades ago about a crisis in their relationship. And they shared with me a conversation that they had had. And in that conversation, the wife said to her husband, quote, why don't you just bring home your paycheck and then leave? Why don't you just bring home your paycheck and then leave? What did she mean? We were to go around the room, we'd probably have a half a dozen different interpretations. What do you think her husband thought she meant? He thought she meant, all I care about is your money. Leave, drop off the check and go. She actually meant the opposite. All I care about is you, but the way you're living your life, 
you might as well, all you're good for, it seems, is your money. I want you home. Now, there's a problem here, right? Go back to the second M. She didn't mean what she said. She failed to speak clearly. She failed to speak honestly. She failed to say what was really in her heart. But also consider this. He failed to understand what he heard. And as a result of hearing her say, all you should do is just leave your check and go, he went. He left her. And for all practical purposes, uh, never came back. Labor to understand. Did you know that in the old uh, Greek culture where the politicians and the philosophers would have their debates, they, would, they had this amazing technique and this, these rules of debate where one person would be over here, another person over there, and this person, it would be his time to talk and he would give his opinion. He would give his perspective. And, and when he was done, this person over here would say, would have to repeat what the first person said in a way that the first person agreed, yes, that's what I said and that's what I meant. And this guy can't give his opinion or his perspective until he's able to express, to state what the other person said. A commitment to understanding what we... Imagine if we did that in our marriages or in our relationships. Imagine if we said, okay, before I respond to what you just said, let me make sure I understand what you just said. And this is what I heard. This is what I think you're saying. This is, this is how I interpret it. Am I right Wow. Can I, re can I recommend it? <laughs> can I suggest it? Can I, can I say to you it's worth it that this is the kind of communication we need to have with each other where we labor to understand? And, and can, I, can I say this? This is so critical in Risen Hope Church. It's critical in our marriages, critical as parents and children, but in particular, it's critical in Risen Hope Church because we are a congregation made up of all different kinds of people. We are a congregation with 25 to 30 different ethnicities represented. We are a congregation with many cultures and ways of thinking and ways of talking and ways of doing things. And, and these things lead to misunderstanding. These things need to be understood carefully. Or else our differences are going to lead to misunderstandings. Misunderstandings are going to lead to division and strife. We must labor to understand. We must work hard at this. This is why our grace and race conversations are so critical. Brothers and sisters, these are so critical. 
We, we must have conversations where we are talking, where we are listening, where we are understanding how each other is thinking and how each other is feeling and how each other is reacting to what's going on in our times and in our culture. Understanding and empathy and abiding unity are too important for us to think that they are too hard. They are too important for us to think that they are too hard. We need to understand what we hear, what we see, what we observe. <coughs> we need to understand. So, can I suggest some questions? I think these are in your outline. In all our relationships, here, here are some questions to ask as we're in conversations, as we're in disagreements, as, as we think differently about things. Questions like, what did you mean by the words, whatever those words may be? What did you mean? What do you mean by this phrase? What do you mean by this pattern or habit in your life? How has your concern or how has that experience made you feel? I think I'm hearing you say this. Am I right? Do you feel like there is anything that I'm not yet hearing? Can can you give me specific examples of what you are perceiving or thinking so that I can understand better? These kinds of questions draw out from others what's really going on in their hearts and lead us to understanding. And so, in order to understand, I suggest we turn off our phones, <coughs> suggest we shut down our texting, and we click off the television, and we close the book, and we relinquish the floor, and we look into the other person's eyes, and we let go of our assumptions and our interpretations, and for as long as it takes, for as long as it takes to understand what that other person is saying or thinking or feeling, Give that person your undivided attention. Understand what you hear. Secondly, nourish with grace. Nourish with grace. Nourish with grace. And I'll have to hurry this up a bit. That first point, it seems to me, was so critical for our relationships Needed to emphasize it, but let's move on to this. Nourish with grace. Look at James 3 and verse 10 and see what the tongue is supposed to do. James chapter 3 and verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What ought not to be so is that from the same mouth come both of these things. From our mouths should come one thing. Blessing. Blessing. It's, it's interesting. The Greek word that's used here is the word uh, eulogia. You, you, ref, you might recognize it. Eulogy. Eulogy. It's, it's made up of two smaller Greek words, one meaning good or well, and the other meaning word. To bless is to impart good words, words of wellness, words of nourishment, words of health, words of goodness to others. It's to speak 
good into other people's lives. It's to speak well-being into other people's lives. We are to bless one another, nourish one another with grace. Ephesians 4 and verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such, this is in your outline, I believe, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen to that. That's, this verse, is, it's full of categorical, no exception type statements. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting means worthless. It doesn't mean dirty as we sometimes, you know, dirty talk. It's not talking about dirty talk or bad language or profanity. Here it's talking about words that have no value, words that don't accomplish anything, words that are worthless. Don't let any worthless words come out of your mouth, but only such, only such as is good for what? Building up. Only words coming out of here, only words that are going to lift others up, that are going to strengthen others, going to edify others, as fits the occasion, Paul says, that it may give grace to those who hear. Make sure that your words are nourishing others with grace. Poetically expressed, our gladness in relationships, our gladness in relationships is nourished by our grace-filled lips. Our gladness in relationships is nourished by our grace-filled lips. Words are to nourish and heal and feed and strengthen and edify and bless. Our, our words are to be like God's words. Many of you will know the description of God's words that are found in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's, God's words revive. They make wise. They rejoice. They enlighten. May our words do the same thing. May everything that comes out of our mouths revive people, give them joy, enlighten them, illuminate them, encourage them. Simple question when you're about to talk is to ask this question, will this nourish Will this nourish? Will the words about to come out of my mouth nourish in grace? Third for today, and this will be our last, our I stands for initiate peace. Initiate peace. James 3 Verses 17 and 18, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who 
make peace. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount just a few months ago, blessed are the peacemakers. Here, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is echoing his half-brother, his Savior. We are to be peacemakers. We are to initiate peace. And that raises two questions about peacemaking. Who should initiate it and when? As to the who, who should initiate peace? I should. I should. Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins against you, if your brother's the one who's done something wrong, go to him, tell him his fault between you and him alone that you may be restored. So if, if the wrongdoer is that guy, it's my obligation to initiate peace. But in Matthew 5, it says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the offer, altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Isn't that interesting? So if it's my brother who's offended me, I'm to go to him. And if I'm the one who's offended my brother, I'm to go to him. Peacemaking is my responsibility. Peacemaking is the responsibility of every child of God. I should initiate peace. When should I do it? The answer is now. Now. If you are at the altar offering a sacrifice, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Who can finish this verse? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Neither give opportunity to the devil. Don't go to bed mad. If you go to bed mad, you're giving the devil an opportunity. We are to initiate peace now. Poetically, to make the peace we wish we had, don't ever go to bed still mad. To make the peace we wish we had, don't ever go to bed still mad. Uh, I know this raises lots of questions. What it means is that if we know there's a conflict between us and others, we have an obligation to take responsibility to pursue peace. And not to wait, not to delay, but to pursue it at the first possible opportunity. Sometimes people will stiff arm us. Sometimes people will not want to make peace. Sometimes people will fight back. That's why Paul said to the Romans, as much as is possible, be at peace with all men. Paul's recognizing that uh, people don't always want peace. But our obligation is to do everything we can and to do it now. To not let the sun go down on our anger. May not be able to control whether somebody else's anger is still there at bedtime, but you can control whether your anger 
is. This doesn't mean you're going to agree with everybody before you go to bed or husbands and wives. You're going to work out all of your disagreements uh, before you go to bed. It does mean, though, that you can communicate and relate in such a way that you don't go to bed mad. You can go to bed disagreeing, but not mad. And it means that you are poised, you are ready, you are eager to forgive. The image came to mind, and what an image it is, of the prodigal son. You know the story, right? This young man, he gets it in his head that he's, he's had enough of work, and he's had enough of home, and he's had enough of dad. Yeah. And so he, he decides he wants to go off into a far country, and he gets his inheritance from his dad. And he goes off and he wastes his inheritance and wastes years of his life. And eventually comes to his senses. And he heads home, hoping that his dad might at least forgive him enough to make him one of his servants. Didn't dare to hope that his dad would keep him as a son, but maybe one of his servants. And where's dad as the son heads home? Where's dad? Dad is out on the road looking down the road for his son to come. Dad is poised and ready to forgive. God, dad is eager to make peace so that at the first opportunity, the first opportunity for there to be peace, for there to be forgiveness, the Father is ready. And, and this is so wonderful because we all know that we're the prodigal son and God is that Father who's waiting for us to come home. God is that one who is ready to forgive, eager to forgive. God is not reluctant or stingy in his grace. God is not somebody who says, no, you're going to have to pay a bit more for that. No, I'm going to stiff arm you for a while. You've, you've offended me. You've grieved me. I'm going to stiff arm you. I'm going to hold you at a distance. No, God, as soon as the son came home, the father ran to his son, made peace, welcomed him home. God runs to us. He eagerly receives us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think the notes say to cleanse us from all righteousness. That's a typo. And I'm sure it was my fault. <laughs> Thankfully, he's not cleansing us from righteousness. He's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. God is this one who is so ready to forgive that as soon as we confess, he forgives. He makes peace. He initiates peace with us. And so, as we work our way down through these principles, and I know I've, we hardly have any time for Q&A today. That's all right. We'll have more time another time. Let's just review here a bit. C stands for what? Chill. O, open up. M, make time. M, mean what you say. U, understand what you hear. N, 
nourish with grace. I initiate peace. This is the law of God. Not making this stuff up. This is the law of God. But it is a law that is a mirror for us, isn't it? And as we look in the mirror, we see our guilt everywhere. We realize this is not how I've done my life. This is not how I've done my marriage, how I've done my parenting, how I've done my relationships, how I've done my, my racial conversations and interactions. This is not how I've done it. And we realize our own sin and our own guilt so let's go all the way back to where we began, and let's close there. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a what? Wretch his what? Treasure. You look at this mirror and you see wretchedness. You look at this mirror and you see guilt all over the place. But how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. He gave his son as the atoning sacrifice for all that wretchedness, every sin of your tongue, every failure to understand, every time instead of initiating peace, you made war. He gave his son for those sins. Are you believing in Christ? Is he your savior, your sacrifice, your atonement before God? Is, are you confident that because he died for your sins, your sins will not be punished? Your sins will be forgiven? God the Father invites you to himself. He says, confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus to be your savior. And you will have peace with me, God says. I want to pause. I want to pray right now as we close. And I want to, to ask that God would speak this peace to us. Heavenly Father, these, these principles convict us. These are your laws. These are your commandments. And... In hearing them, we recognize that we are lawbreakers. James tells us there is one lawgiver and judge, and that's you. We are the guilty before you, and yet you love us, and yet you gave your son for us. Father, I, I believe there are people here whose awareness of their own sin has left them in, a, in a, a deep pit of guilt and shame. They know they're guilty. They, they know that if they got what they deserved, if we got what we deserved, we would face your judgment. They, they know that. They need to know your peace, O oh Lord. Father, I pray for anyone here who, who doesn't yet know Jesus, doesn't yet trust Jesus, that right now 
they will be given grace to believe and to entrust their life and their sins to Christ who will save them from all their sins. Without looking around, I just am pressed at this point to, without you looking around, or I'm not even going to look around, but I just want you to think about these things. And in your own heart, if you're in that place where you haven't ever come to faith in Christ before, right now to do it, to, to pray. Ask God to save you. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to rescue you. Ask God to make peace through faith in his son, Jesus. You can do that right where you are right now. Heavenly Father, as we, as we conclude our worship, as we fellowship with each other in conversation, may our communication, may our fellowship be sweet. And would you please give us what we need to nourish each other with grace? And Father, would you please bless your people throughout the remainder of this day and bless your people throughout this week. And Father, sanctify our words that we would speak only what edifies and sanctify our ears so that we would hear to understand so that our marriages and relationships would be whole, would be healthy for your glory. Please watch over us. Please keep us. Please guard us by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name.